0: columbia technology ventures presents a mock patent examination with jeff sears chief patent counsel at columbia university recorded on october 15, 2015 for more information visit techventures.columbia.edu Columbia's chief patent counsel. I work routinely with Columbia researchers, such as faculty members, postdocs, grad students, and sometimes undergrads, to determine whether we can, whether the university can get patents on their inventions. And then I work with the university's tech transfer arm, Columbia Technology Ventures, or CTV, to find ways to commercialize those inventions, ways to bring those inventions to the public. Today I'm going to talk about Patents 101 and a mock examination. Let me give you a little bit of an overview. I'm going to spend about 10, maybe 15 minutes at most giving all of us a very firm grounding in patents, certain terminology we're all going to want to know. Then I'm going to spend about the next 30 or so minutes walking through what we call the file wrapper of an actual issued US patent. So if you're here, you should all have a handout that looks like this. Mine's on single sheets, but yours are probably double-sided and double-paged. But it's for a very interesting looking object. And what the mock examination is going to focus on is, how did this object get patented? Are there lessons we can take away from the patenting of this object that might help us become better inventors, better prosecutors, uh, better technology licensing officers, and better business people? So as I said, I'm going to spend 10 to 15 minutes in groundwork. I understand uh, some of you may have great patent knowledge. If so, feel free to doze for a few minutes. But just to make sure we're all in the same place, what is a patent? And this is an actual issued United States patent. A great way to think about patents is incentives. A patent is an incentive. It's an incentive in this way. The US government says to inventors, inventors, we would like solutions to problems. Solutions that make the quality of the public's lives better. If you give us a solution, we will give you a patent, and a patent is a certain thing. It's a trade. It's it's an incentive. If you do this, we will give you that. Think about uh, some things that are long distant memories. You know, we all have cell phones today, but it didn't always used to be like that. You can probably readily imagine a scenario in the not too distant past. When, if you had to make a call, and you're in your car on the highway, what would you have to do? Take the off-ramp, drive around some local town you have no idea where you are, and hope to find a payphone. And I hope you have some change also. That's a problem. It's an annoyance. It's cumbersome. Government says to inventors, give us a solution to that problem, we will give you a patent. But I'm a lawyer, so let me be much more precise about what the patent system is about. This is the trade. It's not just any invention. You have to give us what we call an eligible invention. It's an invention that meets certain tests. If you give us that eligible invention, we will give you a time-limited right. This patent is time-limited. It doesn't last forever. A time-limited right. It's an exclusive right, which means it's yours and yours alone, to prevent others from practicing the invention. Now, I underline the word prevent here. Very important. If you own this patent, you have the right to prevent anyone else from practicing it. It does not mean that you yourself have the right to make it. It's only a right to prevent others. And what do I mean by practicing? Practicing is a little legal shorthand that means the following If you have this patent, you have five rights the right to prevent others from making it using it, selling it, offering it for sale, or importing it. Those are your five rights. And here we are. I always forget Mr. Monopoly. And by whenever I push the arrow in the next slide, I'm like, oh, there he is. Very important. A patent is not just a legal document. It is a business asset. It is a commercial asset. And it potentially can be a very valuable monopoly. If you have an exclusive right from the government, You have a monopoly, and it can have all the potential business value that you might think. So how do we get a patent? Remember, I talked about eligible inventions. They're inventions that meet certain tests. What do we call all of those tests? We put them under the rubric of patentability. Is it patentable? Does your invention meet the test to get a patent? Let's walk through a hypo. Now, this hypo is probably suggested by the patent you have in hand, but in any event, we all love pizza. New York City is a great city for pizza. You can get Grimaldi's, you can get Lombardi's, uh, Ray Barry, John's, what have you, and we can all have a little lively debate over which is the best. By the way, it's Grimaldi's, we don't have to have that debate. But how do you prevent the interior surface of the upper lid? I am a patent attorney, so I'm not going to say the top of the box. I'm going to be very precise and say the interior surface of the upper lid of the box from coming in contact with the cheese, making a gooey mess. Anyone? (laughs) Yes, we call it, it it goes by many names, but something that looks kind of, sort of like this. It's a tripod, or there are other names for it. There are many varieties available. Here's one. Uh, Famiglia uses this one, and I can tell you, just for you, I order delivery pizza from around the city and I collect these, the things I do for you. Here's another one, interesting looking, it's from Domino's, yep, I'll admit that. <laughs> Domino's is not bad on occasion and it's very cheap. <laughs> then there's this one, I can't remember how I got this one from, but it's very interesting, it's very. Yeah, very similar to this object, but it has some holes in it. We can have a lot of fun with what those holes do. Many varieties. But how about this one? You ever seen this one? I've never seen it. I would love to have one of these in hand, because I think this is big fun. This is big fun because one of the legs, it's basically an object that looks just like this. One of the legs has a serrated edge. That allows you to not just, you know, prop up the interior surface of the box, but you can flip it over and use it to cut your pizza. Now I'm not sure where you would need this utensil. Perhaps you're getting delivery pizza in the woods <laughs> or in the park. Where are you going to be where you get your delivery pizza without utensils? But there you have it. Where'd you get that one? I'm gonna show you. Oh. Okay. Oh. So this one is patented. I've never seen the actual object, but it is actually a patented item. So let's take a walk through its actual patent. And now I'm going to turn to the handout. This is patent number 7191902. The patent is in the upper right on the title page. As we go through this presentation, I'm going to give you some jargon, which if you use, you will look like a patent pro. Many times in professional settings, all you need to do is demonstrate that you might be someone who knows what they're talking about. You know, sort of sprinkle these little terms in here and there, you're going to look like a pro. We call this the 902 patent. Anytime you see a patent, you always refer to it by the last three numbers. Oh, Jeff, what about that 902 patent? Oh, she knows what she's talking about. Let's look at the title page. Every patent the United States issues looks just like this and the agency in the United States that issues them is the US Patent and Trademark Office, USPTO, or PTO for short. It is a division of the Department of Commerce, which reports to the Secretary of Commerce, which is a cabinet-level official. Things to note about the title page. First, the inventors are listed. The inventors are always on the title page. You also have a filing date, October 31, 2003, And a date of patent, March 20, 2007, in the upper right. That's about three and a half, three and three quarters years. Anyone think that is a short time? Short time. Long time? Okay. Average, somewhere in between, kind of on the short side. Longer would be five, seven, 10. It's kind of short. We'll find out what happened in that three and a half years. Other interesting things on the title page sort of halfway down the left column, little something that says references cited. And you see underneath US patent documents, da-da-da-da. We're gonna find out how those actually got onto this patent and what they mean. And finally, I did tell you it is a time-limited right. I should tell you what the time is. Patent terms are 20 years. And the 20 years starts running from the filing date. But you do not get your monopoly rights until you are issued. And the full, the government says, you have satisfied all of the tests. So in this case, this patent expires naturally on October 31, 2023, but there were no monopoly rights available until March 20, 2007. All right, so let's flip to the next page. Again, <clears throat> I have single sheets. You might have double or, or more. After the title page in any given patent, you come to the drawings. The drawings are a really great place to look if you don't know what the patent is about. And I'll share an inside secret with you that all patent attorneys know. This stuff can be really hard. Really hard. I have a PhD in physics and when I first became a lawyer, I couldn't make heads or tails of patents. It's okay. It takes a lot of experience to figure out how they're written and why they're written in certain ways. So if you're not sure what the patent is about, go to the drawings, because usually those will be intelligible. Here we have some mechanical drawings. Here we are, figure one, Uh aha, the tripod on the pizza in use. Interesting figures, I think, are figure five. Here it is. There is a hand in the drawing, and one of the fingers of the hand is grasping the package saver or the tripod through the hole, and using the serrated edge to cut the slices from each other. There it is, in actual use. And then we come to a couple of really interesting figures. You're going to say, Jeff, those aren't too interesting. let's, Let's just pause on that for a moment. You'll find out why they're interesting shortly. Figure six. Now, I'm pretty good with mechanical drawings. I had no clue what this one is. No clue. But figure seven kind of lets us into it. Like, hmm, figure seven, it looks like a stack, a stack of these tripods. And if you go back to figure six, you see there's two number sevens. What does that all mean? Let's take a look at the next page to help us figure it out. After the drawings, you come to a lot of text, a lot of text. All patents are paginated in a certain way. They have column numbers up at the top, one, two, next page is three, four, and they have line numbers down the middle. So for example, if you're not sure what the drawings are telling you, you can go to the brief description of the drawings, which begins at column two, line 20. And all of a sudden you see figure six is, I'm at column two, line 35, figure six is a perspective diagram of a lid support dispenser, according to this invention. Uh huh. it's a dispenser. It's like a sheet of plastic cups or paper cups. Oh, that's what they're talking about. And figure seven says it's a cross section of the lid support dispenser taken along the line 7-7 of figure six. Makes it all clear. The rest of the text, two general things to understand. There are two parts to the text. First part we call the specification. The second part we call the claims. The claims begin. On the next page, column four, line 25. You know you're in the claims because it'll be preceded by language like this. What is claimed is I claim, we claim, the claims are something. Claim is a very specific patent term. It is not used loosely. This specification has a lot of text. Generally, you can throw almost all of it out. Background of the invention? sort of like the applicant's pitch, the inventor's pitch the examiner why this should be patented. Who cares? It's a sales pitch. It's garbage. The summary of the invention, really bad. Really bad for the following reason. Patents are written in what I call double jargon. Two layers of jargon. The first layer is the technology layer. This is a mechanical invention, but it doesn't have to be. It could have been an electrical circuit a gene sequence, a chemical composition, something. Every one of those objects has a field of art, a technology field, and everyone in that field uses certain terms. We all understand, if we're a double E, what we mean by a transistor, so I don't have to explain it. But if you're not familiar with double E, you don't know what a transistor is. That's the first layer of jargon, technology. Second layer is legalese. This is a document generally written by lawyers, reviewed by examiners, and eventually interpreted by judges and fought over by lawyers. Judges by the way are also lawyers. Probably notice a lot of lawyers there. So, legalese, a lot of whereins, a lot of heretofores, a lot of language not going to make much sense. So when you're reading a patent, look at the title page, go to the drawings. If you can't figure out the drawings, go to the brief description, and then Skim through what is often called the detailed description or the preferred embodiments, something like that. In this case, it's column two, line 40. But spend a lot of time looking at the claims. The claims are very important. Very important. You already know something about claims. You probably don't realize it, but I'm going to tell you, you already know a lot about claims. You just don't know them in the context of patents. Claims are very important, and they are the setup for the next 30-odd minutes of this presentation. So let's spend just a couple minutes making sure we're all in the same place on claims. and let's take a trip to my land. No trespassing. Violators will be shot. Survivors will be shot again. Stay off my land. I really mean it. Okay? Jeff, thanks for that nice little sign. What does this have to do with claims? Great question. Great. First, why are they so important? So important because it is the claims that define the right to exclude. If you own this patent, you have the legal right to prevent anyone else from making it, using it, selling it, offering it for sale, or importing it. But we have to know what it is. If you're a member of the public or the competition, you want to know what is it I can't do? It is the claims that tell us that. And what about Jeff's land? Think of it this way. If you own a piece of land, you might hire a surveyor. And the surveyor will come and create a map of your land. And the surveyor will use some common things, like maybe there's a river that's a boundary of one part of your land, or a stone wall, or a run of trees. There'll probably be some altitudes on your map. There'll be longitudes and latitudes. That's a map of your land. And you can file that map in your town's registrar's office. And that says to the rest of the world, this is my land. The claims do exactly the same thing. They are the map of what you are claiming as yours. And land, if you step on someone's land, if you step on someone's property without their permission, we call it trespassing. With patents, if you make someone's patented invention without their permission, we call it infringement. Trespassing, infringement. And also, if you go into someone's land, say a farmer's land, and let's say I am an apple farmer and I sell my apples. If you come onto my land and you chop down my apple tree, I can sue you for damages. I can sue you for the value of the apple crop I lost this year and the value of the apple crop I'm going to lose for every future year that that tree would have lived and produced fruit. Same thing with patents. If you make someone's patented invention without their permission, they can sue you for their damages. For example, their lost profits. How much did they lose because of your infringement? Shark Tank. <clears throat> we all familiar with Shark Tank? Great program, great program. My favorite shark is Mr. Wonderful, he tells it like it is. And sometimes, inventors just need to hear that. But here's the question that always comes up in Shark Tank. The sharks always ask, do you have a patent? And if you've watched this program more than once, you know the right answer is yes. It's the right answer, yes. I hate this, I hate this question. I hate this back and forth. Oh, it makes me really mad. You know why it makes me so mad? Because it's a stupid question. It's a stupid question and here's why. When the shark says, do you have a patent? That's just like asking this question. Do you own any land? To which I reply, yes. Is there something else you'd like to know? Like where is it? Where is that land, Jeff? Is that a gorgeous apartment with beautiful windows overlooking Central Park West? A prime viewing location in the warmth for the Thanksgiving Day Parade? I really wanna know that because I wanna see it from indoors. Or is it in the middle of no place? It's the claims that tell us that. It's the claims that tell us whether it's a really valuable piece of land or a trivial piece of land. So the last setup before we get to this patent. Felicity, do you want to hand these out? Thanks. We have to talk about something called prior art and the two key tests to determine whether you get a patent. Here's what prior art is, another legal jargon term. Throw it into your conversations whenever you meet business professionals. Well, I don't know about that prior art going to look impressive. Prior art means just this. It's the collection of the world's knowledge, thank you. That was publicly accessible as of the day before you filed. So anything that was publicly accessible anywhere in the world in any language as of the day before you filed is called the prior art. And now the tests. There are two key tests. There are many tests, but I'm going to talk about two key ones. Think of the incentive system, the incentive system. Give us solutions to problems, well, yeah, that means give us solutions that are new. I already had to go off the highway and drive around town and get to the payphone. Don't give me the payphone, give me something new. That's the first test. Your invention has to be new. And whenever you hear me talk about inventions, and henceforth, whenever you talk about inventions, think about claims. It's always the claims that are important. Invention is a very amorphous term. It's the claims. The claims must define something new. And more than that, the claims have to define something that's new and not obvious. Now, not obvious, let me think of it this way. You're going to get a 20-year monopoly. You've got to put a little more effort into it than just giving us something new. We need a little more effort than that. So how do we do the tests? How do we determine whether your invention, whether your claims are patentable? We do a side-by-side comparison. We put the claim on one side and the prior art on the other. And we ask two questions. First, the newness test. We call it 102 in the law. Novelty. Are there any differences between your claim and a single item from the prior art? Are there any differences? If there are differences, You pass novelty, you move forward. Non-obviousness, 103 in the law, asks a different question. It says, okay, great, you have differences. But how significant are they? Are they routine engineering? Are they design choice? Are they optimization? Are they combining familiar elements according to known techniques, achieving predictable results? That's obvious. So novelty is a same-as test. Obviousness is a... How significant are the differences tests? All right, great. Boring, dry patent stuff is over. We all have a thorough understanding of claims. Onwards to the file wrapper. So Felicity is handing out three documents. One set of documents starts with a page that looks like this. This is what the applicant files for this patent. This is actually from the file wrapper of the document. So This is what the applicant, or when you hear me say applicant, hear it as inventor and his or her attorney. This is what the inventor filed in the patent office. It's the first package. The second package looks like this. The first page has on the top the seal of the USPTO and the words United States Patent and Trademark Office. This is what the examiner said in reply to what the inventor filed. And the last package looks like this. Hmm, interesting. It's another one of those tripod things, except it has four legs, and it looks like a tiny table. Okay, So let's walk through the packages. Let's first look at what the applicant filed. First page. First page is a document. It has a stamp in the upper left that says October 31, 2003. That's the date when this application was filed, and sure enough, there's the date on the front page of the issued patent. There's a transmittal sheet, that's what it is, and it lists everything that was filed. I don't really care about all of this stuff, I only care about the claims. If you take nothing else from this presentation, please take the fact that with patents, it's all about the claims. Claims, depend. claims will tell you whether it's the gorgeous location for viewing Thanksgiving Day's parade or something that's worthless, that you don't care to go to. So we flip to the next page, and again, I have single sheets. You'll probably have multi-page sheets. And you see a document that has the numeral six at the top and it says claims. These are the original claims that the inventor sent to the patent office. This was the original ask. The inventor said to the patent office, I would like to patent this. I want to prevent everyone else from doing this. I have invented this. Give me my monopoly right on this. Something I'm gonna tell you right now that would be evident to you if you spent a few minutes, but I'm gonna jump right to the chase on this. If you take a look at Claim 3, Claim 3 says the lid support of Claim 1, Whenever you see language like that, that means take whatever was said in the prior claim and insert it here. So claim three has to be read as claim one, a lid support comprising da-da-da-da-da-da, and then add what's in claim three, wherein said support platform is tapered, da-da-da-da. It turns out claim three is the issued claim number one. If you put them side by side, if you put the issued claim one in the patent and read it compared to Claim 3, they're the same. And then if you take a look at Claim 10 on the next page, and again, Claim 10 says the LID support member of Claim 9, so you have to go back to 9. 9 says the LID support of Claim 8, so you have to go back to 8. 8 says the LID support of Claim 7, so you have to go back to 7. 7 says the LID support of Claim 4, so you have to go back to 4. So Claim 10 includes all of the language in Claims 4 seven, eight, nine, and 10. Turns out claim 10 corresponds to issued claim two. Okay, so applicant asked for 10 claims. At the end, we know he only got a couple. How did it happen? All right, here's where we are. We pick up the second package, the one that has the USPTO logo on the top. First things we wanna note are The filing date, October 31, 2003, and you see date mailed. That's the date this action from the patent office was mailed. August 30, 2005. Well, there goes two years right there. This patent application sat on an examiner's desk for two years, collecting dust. Well, not really collecting dust. Examiners are very overworked. They have a FIFO queue. Every application that comes in, goes at the bottom of the pile, and I take the one off the top. And the pile can be many years long. So this is legitimate. Two years before you hear anything from the patent office. You go to the first page, and you see a document that is titled in the upper left, Office Action Summary. Office action is a jargon term in US patent practice. It means the examination from the patent office. Yeah, Jeff, but what about that prior art that was in that office action? That's a lot of good lingo. You're going to sound very sophisticated. It's good stuff. Things to note. Status. 2A. The box that is checked says, this action is non-final. Non-final is a procedural term. Procedural term means, inventor, here's what I think about your application. You have all of your rights available on the next step. I'm going to tell you what I mean by all of your rights available. You can do anything you like under the patent laws. In your next step, then we go disposition of claims. Box six says claims one, two, four, and nine are rejected, and claim uh, box seven says claims three and ten are objected to. All right, box six is not good news. Rejected means what you might think it means means you're not going to get a patent on those, at least not today. But seven's not bad. Objections are always better than rejections. Rejections mean you're not getting a patent. Objections mean you might be getting one if you take some small, trivial step. And let's look at this page, look down at the bottom. It says attachments on the lower left. One notice of references cited. Hey, references cited. Remember those references cited on the front of the patent? This is where they come from. What the examiner did when he picked up this application, was he did a search of what we call the prior art. And it could be as simple as this. Hmm, looks like a package saver, so I'll do a Google search and I'll type in package saver, pizza, tripod, see what comes up. Anything that was published, publicly available, before October 31, 2003, is prior art. And the inventor's claims have to be new over it, you have to be non-obvious over it. So whatever the examiner looked at goes onto the notice of references cited, and those references go onto the front cover of the patent. A reference can be anything. It could be a patent. It could be a product. It could be an advertisement. Anything that was publicly accessible. All right, let's go to the next page. What did the examiner say? Page two in the upper right. Claim rejections, 35 U.S.C. 102, there's 102, that's the novelty section. You hear 102, that means newness, that's all it means. Let's go to paragraph two, and every action you get in the Patent Office from the U.S. looks kinda sorta like this. They all have the same boilerplate paragraphs. Claim one is rejected under 35 U.S.C. 102 B as being anticipated by Drabic. hmm, interesting. 5509601. 5509601. That's a patent number. So let's take a look at the third package. Third package has the first page that looks like this. Remember what the examiner is doing. And let's do it ourselves. The examiner is taking claim one, putting it side by side Dravic. And the examiner is saying to the inventor, you must satisfy novelty and non-obviousness over this reference. If you don't, you don't get a patent. So the examiner says, Dravic discloses a lid support. Well, why do we care about that? Well, it's because the claim says a lid support. So that can't be new. Comprising a support platform, 15. Here's a support platform to pop the table. That's exactly what you claimed, a support platform, so that can't be new. And a plurality, plurality is patent jargon, means more than one, that's it. And more than one supporting legs, 11 to 14, well, here are the legs, 11 to 14, so that can't be new. Extending downwardly from said support platform, yep, they sure do that. That can't be new. Wherein, uh, ah, next sentence says, the combined structure of the support platform and the support legs is such that a plurality of the lid supports are able to be intimately stacked for efficient storage. Figure six. Well first, intimately stacked for efficient storage. What the heck is that doing in this patent? Right, this is the patent on the, the blade, right? the rated edge, the cutting thing, right? No. That's what this patent ended up being about. But that's not what the inventor asked for up front. The inventor up front said, my package saver is special because you can stack them on top of each other in very close proximity. It's really good for close packing. It takes up very little space. That's what the inventor asked for. This is what this patent was originally about. Unfortunately for the applicant, the examiner says, hey dummy, look at figure six. Looks like intimate snacking to me. Sorry, you are not novel. Claim one is rejected. This is exactly how it goes in an office action. If you are an inventor or a patent attorney, this is what you get. You get the rejection, You get the reference, you compare it side by side, and you figure out what to do. Let's go to the next interesting paragraph. I'm going to flip the page, and I'm on page three on the top on the Patent Office side. And now in uh, paragraph six, claim two is rejected under 35 U.S.C. 103A. 103, obviousness. We're talking about how significant are the changes differences, as being unpatentable over Travic, 5509601. Oh yeah, I know what that one's about. In view of Marata, 5600889. Well, let's flip the next page in the prior art package. And you see a document that looks like this. This is Marada. Marada is another lid support. It's called a detachable lid support within a food server. These names really don't make any difference, but the drawings are very important. And you look at figure two. Here's figure two in the next page of Murata, And the examiner says, look, Dravic discloses a whole lot of stuff that you've claimed. I already told you about it in claim one. But he doesn't disclose this part of claim two that says, wherein said platform is tapered to provide a narrower portion and a wider portion. I'm reading right from the claim. That's what I'm doing. So the examiner makes this argument. Someone of skill in the art would have a motivation to combine Drabic with Marada to get your invention. How do I know that? Well, Marada says, and this is the next page in your prior art package, says that column three, line 20, however, the cover support, 28, may be any of a variety of shapes, such as oval, rectangular, square, or polygonal. So the examiner says this It would have been obvious to one having ordinary skill in the art at the time the invention was made, and I'm reading right from the office action, paragraph six, to modify the shape of the support platform of Dravic so the support platform is tapered. Ba-ba-ba-ba-ba. Would have been an obvious matter of design choice to come up with the invention of claim two, in as much as the structures will work equally well. So, the examiner is saying this claim one, same as Dravic, you don't move forward. Claim two, not the same as Dravic, but there would be a motivation to combine Dravic with Marada to get your invention because it's all design choice. The shape is design choice, who cares what shape it is? Round, square, triangular, tapered, it doesn't matter. They all work the same. All right. Now we go to the next page. I love this page. This is great. It's really good. Page five. You know, I saw a rerun just the other day of one of my favorite programs. It's a pretty dumb program, but you can probably remember Howie Mandel Deal or No Deal. I'm always on that, you know. I'm watching them like, take the deal. This is a terrible program for people who don't understand statistics. Like, take the deal. They offered you $200,000. Take the deal. Page five allowable subject matter. Take the deal. This is what it is. The examiner says this. Nine claims three and ten are objected to as being dependent upon a rejected base claim. But would be allowable if rewritten in independent form, including all the limitations of the base claim and any intervening claims. So the examiner has said this. Look, claim three depends on claim one. Claim one, I've already rejected. But I think claim three is pretty good. If you rewrote it and included everything in claim one, I will allow it. Same thing for claim 10. If you rewrote it, I will allow it. If you are an inventor or a patent attorney, the game is allowance. Allowance means you win. You are going to get the patent. That's what the examiner said. Claim three and 10, gonna give you the patent right here. Take the deal. I'm reading this case, I'm saying take the deal, take it. What are you doing? Why aren't you taking the deal? That's really not fair, because you don't know that the applicant hasn't taken the deal. So let's go back to our applicant package and turn the page. And now I'm on a document that says amendment, and it has a stamp in the upper left, December 1, 2005. And it says, sir, in response to the office action dated August 30, 2005, applicant, through his attorney, replies with the following amendments and remarks. We go to the next page, and we see something that says listing of claims. We see one canceled, two canceled, three, we see a lot of strike throughs and a lot of underlines. This is what we mean by an amendment. An amendment simply means I'm changing my claims. I might be canceling claims, I might be rewriting claims, I might be adding words, I might be taking words away. Changing my claims, moving the, moving the boundary lines of the property that I think is mine. That's all it means. Well, Claim 3 looks like a rewritten version of the original Claim 3. That's all the applicant did, rewrote Claim 3 in independent form. We can kind of predict what's going to happen next. Then there's Claim 4. Claim 4 has been slightly amended, and we see 5, 6 going on to the next page, 7, 8 slightly amended, there's 9, there's 10. Move on from that, you see a page of text that's called Remarks. A response to an examiner's action, response to an office action, always includes two parts. An amendment, usually an amendment changing my claims, changing the boundary lines, and argument. Telling the examiner why he or she is wrong, or why he or she should allow the case. Interesting stuff in here. The most interesting is, let's look at paragraph two. This is the paragraph that begins, the examiner has rejected claim one. And let's look at the last sentence. This is line three towards the end. Uh, Actually, let's look at the second to last. Applicant herein has canceled claims one and two, such that those rejections are now moot. It should be noted, however, that in canceling those claims, applicant does not disclaim the right to the subject matter therein, and further, does not acquiesce to the rejection levied by the examiner. And the prior paragraph, paragraph one, in the second sentence, the applicant says in the present response, applicant submits claim three in independent form such that it should be allowed. Here's the upshot of these two paragraphs I'm taking part of the deal. You gave me claim three. You said I'm going to get a patent on it. You know what? That sounds pretty good. I'm going to take part of that deal. I'm going to take claim three. I'm not taking claim ten, I'm going to take claim three. But you know what? I'm taking it only because it's easier to take it. I choose not to fight with you today over it, but I reserve the right to fight with you about it tomorrow. I am not giving up that original claim one. I think I'm still entitled to it. That's all it means. So we move on. There's another couple of pages of remarks. And then we see what the examiner says. We go to the Patent Office package. We turn the page. And now we are in a document that has the Patent Office logo up top, looks like this. And it says date mailed January 17, 2006. Open it up. Office action summary. There we are. We look at box 2A. This action is final. Caps bold. You know that can't be good, right? Even if you don't know anything about patents, you know final can't be good. Can't be good because you went from non-final to final. Here's what final means. When your action is non-final, that means the applicant, the inventor, can do whatever they want with the claims. You can cancel claims, you can add claims, you can change the language of the claims, you can add words, you can take words away. Anything you want, the examiner is required to enter the claims, is required to officially agree to look at those claims. When the action is final, the examiner doesn't have to do anything You can ask to amend the claims, and the examiner can say, no. I am not going to enter those. I'm not going to agree to look at those. It's at my discretion. It's too much work for me. I'm not doing it. We look at the disposition of claims. Five says claim three is allowed. A patent is going to come out of this. It's allowed. Excellent. Box six, claims four to nine are rejected. Box seven, claim 10 is objected to. Remember that take the deal? Hey, I gave you three and 10. You took three, take the deal. Take 10, why aren't you not taking 10? We turn the page. Claim rejections, yes. Yeah, pending means this. These are all the claims that I am currently looking at. These are all the claims that are on file. You turn the next page, claim rejections 35 USC 102. Well, we know 102 is, 102 is novelty. And the examiner says this in box two. Claims 4, 5, and 7 to 9 are rejected under a 35 USC 102B, that's novelty, as being anticipated by the Japanese patent number da 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 to Hasegawa. Well let's take a look. Let's go to the prior R package and turn it. You'll see something that has a layout like this, and it's English. It's good news. It's good news. But if you keep turning, it turns out that's just a machine translation of a document that's originally in Japanese. It's in Japanese. It's not in English. It doesn't matter. The fact that something was not published in English doesn't matter. If it was publicly accessible anywhere in the world, in any language, it is available as prior art. So this is a Japanese patent that the examiner is citing to the U.S. inventor. It is totally legitimate prior art. And when you turn the page, it's an object that looks like this. It a little support for a vase. It's interesting. But if you look at the drawing, and I'm looking... Uh, I guess the best way to see it is this little box one. You see that the legs kind of have a serrated edge. It's kind of grooved. Hmm. Serrated edge, serrated edge. So the examiner is basically saying, remember the way we did it before? Here's claim four. Here's what claim four says. I can find each feature in claim four in this document right here. Because what did I ask for in claim four? If you go back to the applicants package, claim four says a lid support. Well, yeah, this is a support for a vase, but I could put it in a pizza box if I wanted to. Doesn't matter, it's still gonna support the lid. Comprising a support platform, yep. At least one leg supporting said support platform above a support surface, yep, I got that. And a serrated edge, got it, it's all here. All right, foreign language. Now we go on to the next page in the patent office package. Allowable subject matter. Five, claim three is allowed. Six, claim 10 is objected to as being dependent upon a rejected place claim, but but da ba I've heard that someplace. Take the deal. Why aren't you taking the deal? Come on. What are you waiting for? Take the deal. And then you see response to arguments. Applicants' arguments with respect to 12-1-2005 have been considered but are deemed to be moot in view of the new grounds of rejection. This is the game examiners play all the time. Here's what this language means. You sent in your original claims. The examiner did a search. The examiner rejected you. As a result of the rejection, you had a non-final rejection. You said, I'm going to change my boundary lines. I'm going to change what I'm asking for. You are totally entitled to do that. The examiner, however, is also entitled to do a new search. And so the examiner did a new search and said, good news. You know those rejections I gave you in the first time? You got over those, but you changed what you asked for. And I did a new search, and I applied the new references. So those other arguments you made don't matter, because now the game has changed. Now the game is getting over this reference. All right, and we see the next page. If you turn it, page four, top of the page. Applicant's amendment necessitated the new grounds of rejection presented in this office action accordingly. Whoa, here it is, all caps, bold. This action is made final. You can't do anything without my discretionary approval. What do you mean, Jeff? I don't understand. It's good. Let me tell you exactly what I mean. Let's go back to the applicant package. We're gonna skip through the remarks and we're gonna get to a document that looks like this. It has a transmittal sheet. And it has a date stamp in the upper left and it says March 21, 2006. Here's what happened. The examiner gave us this rejection over the vase support. And we said, you know what, I'm gonna change my claims. I'm gonna change my claims. And the examiner hand wrote on that response, if you turn it over, do not enter. Do not enter. Well, what does that mean? Well, it means this. Go back to the Patent Office package, next page. Got the Patent Office stamp at the top. It says, date mailed, 4 2006 You open it up. It doesn't say office action anymore. It says, advisory action before the filing of an appeal brief. Document looks like this. You look at box three. Amendments, three. The proposed amendments filed after a final rejection, but prior to the date of filing the brief, will not be entered because A, they raise new issues that will require further consideration and or search, and C, they are not deemed to place the application in better form for appeal. What you take away from this is the following. Your first rejection is always non-final. That means you can change your claims. Hey, I asked for Argentina, I'm gonna ask for less. I'm gonna ask for something different. I'll ask for Australia, I'll change my claims. The examiner is required to put those into the official case and then look at those. But he or she can do a new search and reject those. And after he or she does that, they can give you a final rejection. And now you can't change your claims unless the examiner approves. And I can tell you, examiners don't approve because they don't want to do more work than they have to. It's my discretion. I could look at it again for free, but why would I do that? Why would I do that? Because, let's go back to the applicant's package. There was a transmittal sheet. We go to the next page. It's a document that says, Request for Continued Examination Transmittal. Why would the examiner look at it again? Because he can say no and you have to pay more money. Examiners work on a quota system. Examiners have to review so many cases every quarter. If they look at your case twice, they only get one credit. If they look at it once and force you to file an RCE, they get two credits. Well, I'm on a quota system. I'm not gonna do more work for nothing. So the examiner files a request for continued examination. Key thing, look at box three. B, check in the amount of $455 enclosed. Want me to look at it again? Pay more money. All right. So they did. We go on to the next page of the applicant's package. And we see the amendment. And the amendment says four. Instead of a serrated edge, it says we're going to call it a cutting edge, because that's really what we meant here. Yeah, it's serrated, but it has to have a cutting edge so it can actually cut the pizza. This vase support, this is not a cutting edge. This just happens to be serrated. All right, wonder what the examiner said to that. If you've been following Jeff's take the deal story, you can probably guess. We go to the Patent Office package again. It says date mailed, May 31, 2006. Office action summary, 2A. This action is non-final. Disposition of claims, five, claim three is allowed. We already had that. Six, four to nine, and 11 are rejected. Seven, claim 10 is objected to. Take the deal, you're not taking the deal, come on. Go to the next page. It says continued prosecution application. The request for continued examination, parens RCE, filed on 5-11-2006 under da-da-da-da, based on da-da-da, is acceptable. And action follows. If you file an RCE, I am required to look at your new claims. I am required to let you do whatever you want to the claims, and it's like we start the clock over. We start over. I'm required to do it, so this is non-final. Non-final means in response, I can change my claims however I like, and the examiner must do it, must look at it. Well, we already know what happened in this action because nothing else was allowed. So what did the inventor do? Apparently, cutting edge wasn't good enough. We go back to the inventor package. We go to the next page. It's got a stamp in the upper left, June 23, 2006. Amendment. In response to the office action, da-da-da, I don't even have to tell you what happens there. Because you go to the Patent Office package, and it says date mailed, August 2, 2006. You open it up. Office action summary. 2A, this action is final. Oh, boy. Here we are again, disposition of claims, five, claim three is allowed, six, claims four to nine, eleven to 12 are rejected, seven, claim 10 is objected to. Take the deal, why aren't you taking that deal? Come on, we've gone through this so many times. You go to the next page, allowable subject matter, claim three is allowed, remember we took the deal for claim three right at the start. That was trivial, yeah, okay, I'll take that. Claim 10 is objected to as being dependent upon a rejected base claim. but da Heard that before. Response to arguments. Applicants' arguments filed on June 23, 2006 have been fully considered, but they are not deemed to be persuasive. Nice try, inventor. I really don't. Nah, no. I'm not convinced. I'm not convinced you're still the same as the prior art. Sorry, nice try. Oh, by the way, this is final. So if you want to change your claims again, you're going to have to pay more money. So what happens? Let's go back to the applicant's package. Now I'm looking at a document that has a stamp of October 6, 2006 in the upper left. It's called Amendment After Final. And now look at this. If you turn it on its side, it says, please enter, initialed by the examiner. Oh, wait a minute. The examiner is going to do something for free? Wow, that's amazing. Well, not really, because you look at the next page, which is the amendment, and we have claim three. It's called previously presented. We changed it way back. That's allowed. And look at four. Four is claim 10, rewritten in independent form. The applicant finally took the deal. Hey, congratulations, you took the deal. You're kind of stupid, though, because I gave you that deal in the first instance, and you could have filed one reply and be done with it. Instead, you filed four. You paid more money to the patent office, and you paid more money to your attorney. So what happens next? You go to the patent office package. Notice of allowance and fees due. Congratulations, the notice of allowance. This is it. You have satisfied the tests. Now all you have to do is pay more money, and you are going to get the patent. So what's the take? Take the deal? Not quite to take away. It's one way to think about it. A patent, yes a patent is a commercial asset. It's a commercial asset. You're spending money to get something, to get legal rights to get rights to prevent others from practicing your invention. It's not free. You have to pay your patent attorneys. You have to pay the patent office. So you always need to think about what am I going to do with this patent? What am I gonna do with it? Am I actually gonna make and sell this item? If I'm gonna make it and sell it, then I am gonna fight for claim one. And I'm gonna fight for claim four because I want the broadest protection possible. I want the biggest piece of land. Remember, this patent was not about the cutting edge. It was about the fact that these things can be intimately stacked. These can't, these can't, and these can't. It was about intimate stacking. That would be a very valuable claim because it doesn't matter if the knockoff has the cutting edge. All that matters is that they stack. But I've never seen one of these. I've never seen one. And we've never seen one. So maybe the better choice here would have been to say, you know what, I'm not gonna make and sell these. I'm gonna be happy with claim three and claim 10. I'm gonna take the deal early, I'm gonna pocket my savings and apply it to my next invention. You always have to be thinking about a patent as a commercial asset. Sometimes you really want to fight for that extra claim. You want the broad protection. Other times it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter, and so you let it go. Felicity, how are we doing on time? Okay, good. So, <clears throat> a couple of key things to know about the patent process. <clears throat> Whether you're an inventor here, Columbia, someplace else, At some point in your career, you're gonna be thinking, "Hmm, I wonder if I should patent this? This was kind of hard to do. This was a very successful result. But you're not sure. Is it a good invention? Is it patentable? How expensive is it going to be? So what do you do? You should always seek advice from a professional. If you're here at Columbia, you have a great resource, Columbia Technology Ventures. As I mentioned at the outset, this is the university's office that handles all the university's patents. It's a great office to go to for advice on patenting. You go to my office, the Patent and Licensing Group, we have the lawyers. We can tell you, you know what, kind of patentable, but not sure about the market, or "Hmm, not very patentable, but wow, what a big market for this. Maybe we want to pursue that. When do you do it? You always want this advice before you tell people outside of Colombia what your invention is before you tell anyone outside of Colombia. Now, I say tell, the proper word is disclose. Disclose is a legal jargon term, but what does that mean? Jeff, what do you mean when you say, before I tell anyone outside of Colombia? Well, anytime you communicate information about your invention outside of Colombia, Anytime you want to do that, you should stop and think about contacting CTV or my office PLG. And if you're at a company, anytime before you send information off-site, you should be thinking before I should talk to company's counsel. Here are all the things that potentially are a disclosure. You go to a conference; that's a disclosure. You submit an article for publication; that's a disclosure. It's published; that's a disclosure. Submitting a grant application, that's a disclosure. And by disclosure I mean you press the send button, that's the disclosure. You use it in public. Yes, every time I pick up my pizzas, I put this on it and I don't hide it. That's using it in public. And sometimes even if I do hide it, it's using it in public. I give one to you. Hey, what do you give me for it? Oh, I'll give you 20 cents. Okay, give you one. All of those are disclosures. And why is that important? It's important because when you disclose first, before you filed, potentially you shoot yourself in the foot in the following way. Remember we talked about prior art, the collection of the world's knowledge that's available before you file? That's literally true in foreign countries. For example, I came up with this invention, and I published it on my blog, and my blog is not password protected, and I did it today, and I did not file a patent application on this invention today in Great Britain. Tomorrow in Great Britain, this is the prior art. Wow, my own stuff is, my prior, is prior art? Yes, your own stuff can become prior art. There's no way you will get a patent on it because you're the same as your own prior art. Now. In the U.S., you have one year from your disclosure. So if you did the same thing in the U.S., you have a year from today to file. A year, that's pretty generous. But what if you've been laboring away in a laboratory and you come up with the cure for cancer and you publish it? If you published it and you didn't file, your rights to patent protection in virtually every country around the world except for the U.S. would be lost. That means companies could make it and sell it in Japan, Europe, what have you, without any recognition to you. You would only have US protection. And why do you even get into the game? Well, I'll give you the legal answer. I'm Columbia's lawyer, so I could drag out Columbia's patent policy and I could say, you're obligated to. It says right here, you must tell us about your inventions. Boring, not persuasive. I know you're not going to be convinced. You can share in royalties. It's about money. Remember Mr. Monopoly, right in the first slide? Patents can result in money. Here's how it happens at Columbia. You come up with this invention as a Columbia researcher. You tell Columbia about it. The university owns your patent rights, and the university, specifically CTV, goes out looking for companies who would like to make and sell this. They find someone, maybe the company that makes this. They're looking for a new and improved product. Columbia and that company make a deal. It's called a contract or a license. And as part of that deal, the company agrees to pay Columbia money in exchange for Columbia letting the company practice Columbia's patents. Remember, a patent is a right to prevent. Columbia says to the company, I'm not gonna assert my patent against you as long as you agree with me to pay me money to use it. Well, that money is royalties, and if you are a Columbia inventor, you share in those royalties. Your royalty sharing could be between, in rough numbers, 25 and 40% of whatever Columbia collects. So, conclusions. I try my best for humor. I don't succeed many times, but inventions can make a lot of dough. This whole presentation has been about pizza and package savers, and remember, it's got this serrated edge on the cover, but that's not what it was about. It was about the intimate stacking. Very interesting. File before you disclose. If you have interesting research results, if you have something that was hard to do, that took you a while to do, if you're not sure if it's an invention, if it's patentable, Talk to someone who knows. You could talk to CTV. There are many folks from CTV here today. You could talk to me, and we can make a decision. Is it worth filing or not? We often do the cost-benefit balancing. And the cost-benefit balancing is key. You always want to evaluate the commercial merit of your invention early. What are you going to do with the patent? Are you actually gonna go out and make and sell those little objects? Then you want strong protection. You want claim one. Or is this kind of like a vanity patent? Just want to put it on your resume. You don't really need to fight for that. You can accept a much narrower protection. But be realistic. Sort of do the back of the envelope. You're going to spend in rough numbers, or the university will spend in rough numbers, fifty dollars to $100,000 to get this patent. And you might only collect in royalties a fraction of a cent for every one of these that's made. So how many of these have to be made and sold before you just break even on patent costs? A whole lot, a whole lot. If you ask yourself that question early, you'll be very, very well rewarded by the patent system. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening. For more information on Columbia Technology Ventures, visit techventures.columbia.edu.